uh welcome to the split take podcast this is your your co-host jacob you want to introduce yourself chandler 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 co-host chandler yes chavez so the podcast is a year old now yeah we're recording this on the 27th and i think it the i got the notification for the renewal of the website domain five days ago Mm. uh, which means we probably published the first episode around this time last year amazing I don't know if it's the official first day, but whatever. No, it's it's not really. Uh, it's around that time. Yes, it is the season. That's all that matters. For a while now, I've been wanting to do our first episode, uh, Mandatory Frenchness, was kind of an introduction to the podcast. And it's also, we've come a long way since then, both audio quality wise, uh, the format, the way our conversations progress. So I feel like that first episode isn't necessarily a good place to start. No. And I wanted to use this episode as a way of like a reintroduction and to point people to this one as like start here for a better idea of the quality and the conversation and what goes on typically. Uh, we did. We spent the entirety of the first episode just shitting on Godard. Which is why it's appropriate that we will be reviewing our very first Godard film today. Yes. On the podcast, not our first Godard film that we've, we've watched Godard films. Oh, I'm going to, this is weird because I'm going to feel the need to explain things that have already been explained on the podcast, but yeah. I think that's, that's for the best. So what is the premise of the podcast? Would you uh, say? I'm, I mean, the, the premise is essentially each week we look at another movie on the BFI's top 100 films of all time list from 2012. There's a critics and a director's list, which we've yes, kind we're of doing morphed both. together. So it's not technically 100 films. It's over that. Um, what we also we initially paired that with recent theater releases. Uh, those are now a thing of the past. <laughs> we like to we still like to do them. We just can't. Yeah. So we're kind of just uh, pairing them with whatever we feel like. Sometimes it matches really well. Sometimes it does not. The The episode I'm currently editing is the. There will be blood and the Tatami Galaxy episode, which like you couldn't pick two more opposite things. One's an anime TV show and one's a PTA film. But then sometimes we do things like The Wild Bunch and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Great episode. Great movies. Great movies. Those two conversations, I think, are still like they stick out in my mind as some of the, the best conversations we have. Definitely The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I don't remember much about The Wild Bunch conversation. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is a great movie, though. Um, and it's been a year. We've released 52 episodes. So that roughly translates to a year. S somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Although that's a bit deceptive because the, the posting schedule for these episodes has been all over the map. It's but where is it right now? Well, OK, so we started it like every other week, I think we were doing yeah, we that was we also started like two hour episodes. Yeah, we were we, were, we started a little slow, kind of gearing up, seeing uh, getting our feet wet. And I was very good, very good about getting every episode out <laughs> Tuesday morning at around eight o'clock mountain time. That all changed. I don't know when, probably when the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I mean, if there if you if you can find a way well, I guess I could um, edit them. I don't I have audition. Is that what it is? Audition you use to edit it? Yes. Adobe Audition. OK, I have it at work, so I can figure it out. I think out. both of us started with Adobe with Audacity. I still use Audacity. Well, I've I've upgraded. I have audition. I just don't have it on this computer. Mm. 
Well, we can explore that at some point. And we we've we've wanted to explore maybe creating a visual element for this podcast at some point of like at having some point, yeah. video, but maybe maybe when we move to LA. Yeah, that that might be <laughs> why not? I don't know. I'd record it in a in a room. I mean, just just a room like a like I'm imagining a uh, a basement. You just go down, you just huddled. I'm I'm imagining a basement with uh, a sallow neon sign uh that's brown and a um and a giant poster of gooby in the middle i recently watched bong joon ho's first film barking dogs never bite so i'm thinking of the basement in that film yes but now i'm thinking of like what if you were just in a, a dark basement and you just saw like gooby the image of gooby oh, in the gooby, shadow at the gooby's end. already terrifying yeah so gooby is a reoccurring thing in this podcast uh look it up crazy movie we've never seen it we've never seen it no We've never seen it. We're going to watch it one day. Yeah. It's going to happen. I was talking with uh, my friend the other day. We were exploring downtown Tucson and the conversation got to the loft cinema in Tucson is renting out the theater for a hundred bucks an hour. And you're like, well, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should rent the theater and watch Gooby. (laughs) Do it. Give it the justice that it deserves after years of hyping it up as a joke. My question is, do you think when you rent a theater like that, do you think that they have a projectionist who also watches the movie? I don't know, but maybe. Imagine some poor soul showing up to work not knowing that they're about to sit through Gooby. And he won't be able to ask the people exiting the theater what the fuck, what the the reasoning behind their decision was. I was thinking like the the director of programming at The Loft, his name's Jeff Yank. I don't know him, but he... He gives like little speeches before some of like the special screenings of yeah. the classic films. It's like talks about the history and all that for the audience. And I just uh, imagine that like we call to make the reservation to play Gooby. And then <laughs> the the theater worker calls Jeff and it's like, it's finally happened. Someone scheduled Gooby. The day has arrived. He, he breaks the in case of Gooby break glass case. Which sends a flare that he shoots over the Tucson sky so all the fans of Gooby can congregate. Fans of Gooby unite. <laughs> they literally crawl out of the ground because they're subhuman. Oh no. At some point in the past six months, I got behind in editing. But, which doesn't really matter because we're still ridiculously far ahead. We are recording this around the time of the one year anniversary. But the way it works is I won't be releasing this audio, this episode. Until the two-year anniversary. <laughs> I, I don't know. But probably for another, not another three weeks. Which, you know, is fine. That's not bad. No. And I've been slowly catching up, kind of, sort of. It, like, I do it in, like, spurts. Like, I get a lot of inspiration and I jump ahead. And then the next week I, I kind of fall behind and it's just... A back and forth thing. So, oh, it's fine. This sometimes leads to some of the people. If you ever listen to the podcast as they are episodes are being released, sometimes it, there's like a little feed, like a a delay. The one I can think of most recently was our review of Palm Springs, which was yeah. one delayed a few weeks uh, after we recorded, and two, our conversation before Palm Springs, we talked about the Dune trailer and said like it just released the other day. And then uh, tenant will tenant ever be released or something, you know, some yeah. timely news. And w- at which point when I released it had become old news. Now, uh, Dune, are you referring to the 2021 film Dune? I'm referring to the then 2020 film <laughs> and now 2021 film. 
but yeah, so that's the that's kind of the format of the podcast in terms of releasing. It is mostly I try to release two every week. Okay, how do we record these episodes? All at one, all at one time. What do you mean by that? I mean that we record in we have one session a week, which is then broken up into two episodes. Right. So we we originally we were talking for like two hours about two films and some general banter. And then we just decided we'd be better, it would be better to split split the takes split the takes just have one movie per episode plus a little uh, just conversation sometimes simple short you can uh, you can hone in on the the movies you want to hear reviews for it's true they're they're brief they're brief not too tangential it's not really an episodic podcast anymore although you could follow along as we progress higher and higher on the BFI list it's a loose structure to say the least. As a refresher, who are we? Who are you, Chandler? Who am I? Aspiring filmmaker based in Phoenix. Like, other than that, I don't know. (laughs) Aspiring filmmaker from Phoenix. Writer who reads scripts for a living somewhat. kind of. Uh, Indiana Jones is overrated. And I love the Big Lebowski. There we go. (laughs) Me, I am Jacob. (laughs) See, I'm also at a lost uh, aspiring filmmaker. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, technically we are. Yeah, we are aspiring because we, we it's not hard to be an aspiring filmmaker. No, the barrier well, no, of I entry mean, is I mean, low. Technically, we are filmmakers. We have made films. Yes. Well, I haven't made anything recently. Yes, you have. Well, not recently, but you've still done it. I still yeah, I still do things. I still edit. Um, you make films. Yeah. So that- I, I have a day job in marketing. I take photo photographs, make videos. I'm probably more of a photographer at the moment than I am a, a film yeah. person professionally. I like really long movies. It's uh, true. Favorite movie of all time is Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Although I hate pretentiousness in films. And if you if you listen to this podcast at any for any length, uh, you realize that we're not totally on board with the uh, the BFI and their decisions. No. Uh, sometimes we are, though. Sometimes we're not. So it's not exactly like we're. I don't think you could pigeonhole us into like the traditional like uh movie indie movie foreign film fanatics no yeah there's uh, a bit of diversity in our opinions uh also as far as like being split on the bfi picks uh, i just want you to know that every time i watch one of the bfi movies now the first thing that comes into my head is this is on it and the red shoes isn't yeah Uh, yeah yeah the red shoes by the way we uh reviewed a few weeks ago we did what uh, yeah weeks it's been like months at this point well released a few weeks ago oh this is like further covid and quarantining and like staying away from people has uh messed with my sense of time and then since we record every week that's been a little bit of a marker of keeping track of time but then Mm -hmm. releasing it delayed messes everything up again so I, i have no clue where we're at only reason why I know where, where I'm at in the year is because my job is requires me to plan ahead <laughs> for things. Now, here's my question. Okay. It's been it's been a few episodes. We're not at the halfway point. So we're, we're still pretty early on in this list. So we, we are subject to change. Twenty five percent of the way through the list. Still still pretty early on to the list. I'm curious as of right now, what your current favorite is and least favorite is that we've done so far okay should we both do least favorites first 
sure that might be my favorite i'm gonna cheat a little uh okay but we'll do let's do let's start with least favorites i'm uh, curious because i feel like our least favorites are pretty similar they are they might even be the the same but i think chandler and I, it's safe to say that chandler and i are least favorite films like our bottom five or might be pretty similar uh, our yeah. top five probably very different likely we've generally agreed um on on the on the couple movies that we really kind of like scratched our heads and like why is it why is it on here although there haven't been that many there haven't been that many that we really were like confused as to why they're here um but there have been quite a few where we're just lukewarm on them and at the end of every episode we ask ourselves does this deserve to be on the bfi list and and it's uh, 60% of the time we say yes, 50%. Yeah. But we have a good yeah. track record of kind of uh, saying no to quite a few of these. Not to say we don't like them. No. Well, some of them I don't like. Yes. <laughs> I will say my bottom uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. My bottom seven, I straight up don't like. My my least favorite one that we've watched so far and one that I, I am generally perplexed as to why it's on here is The Imitation of Life. Okay. <laughs> That's the only one I I have no conceivable justification for its inclusion on this list. Really? Not even Husbands. I understand. Like, as much as I don't care for for that film, I understand how you can reach that point. Interesting. Imitation of Life is just like, uh, maybe the melodrama vote really uh, came out for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that one's close for me. It's it's the third from the bottom for me. Mm. It's in the uh, the echelon of movies I just straight up don't like. Um, and I I do think about that often that it's on here and the red shoes isn't. I I only have three films I don't like on, on this list. Three like straight up don't. Okay. Like, the my bottom, despite the fact that it is technically not bad. The most painful of ex- experience of this entire uh, podcast so far has been greed. That's my number two. Greed was just the worst. It So greed, for those who don't know, was kind of risen to fame because it was this nine hour long silent film that was butchered by the studio and the footage has been lost and it's now like a three hour silent film. Oh, it's like four. It's closer to four than we watched like a we watched a weird Frankenstein's monster restoration. But the the normal version is there are three cuts, but only two exist. The one being the salvaged cut, which is around four hours long. And the one being the the theatrical, quote unquote, studio cut, which is a little over two hours long. And I remember when I first watched the salvaged cut that I thought maybe I'll come back and watch the two hour cut at some point. Every time that thought has crossed my mind, my experiences have just hammered it out of contention. I'm willing to return to it. I'm also willing to return to imitation of life just because I'm a bit of a uh, cinematic masochist (laughs) where I I put myself through pain and it it is... (laughs) It's attractive to me to do that. Well, he uh, does watch the prequels every year. For those who don't know, that's not a good thing to. I have to. You have to know me first, and then I, I let people know about that. <laughs> so wait, then what are the other two you don't like? Opening night, John Cassavetes. 
<laughs> I apologize to the Cassavetes fans. Split take, because I, I, I quite like that. Opening night, greed, and imitation of life are the, the bottom. Oh, three. so greed is one of them? Yeah. yeah. Very nice. With opening night, um, this is a good thing to explain about my own personal uh, thing with movies, is I have a tough time sometimes getting into films, paying attention fully. I, I easily misread sometimes. And therefore, I'd like to make it a point to go back and watch things a second time before really cementing my opinion fully. Not to say that I won't have an opinion after a first time. But. Yeah. Technically, you should see every movie twice. To f- well, if that's it's important true. to see. Yes. Yeah. Uh, some films you don't need to. You can watch it, move on, and you should probably watch other stuff. I'm not I'm not seeing tag a second time. Uh, but unfortunately, I have seen Jack and Jill a second time. No, don't ask the <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> but opening night, I, I had already watched it before the podcast. Didn't like it. Found it boring. Watched it again for the podcast. I tried to keep an open mind. Wanted to, to get into it. And after an honest reviewing, uh, it still didn't do it for me. So that of the bottom three, that's the only one that I'm like, for sure, this one's probably not going to move any higher. It's going to be a sad day when we finally get past our last Cassavetes movie. It's coming up. We reviewed quite a few. Oh, God. I mean, I, I, try, I wanted, I told myself I was going to try to uh, read that book mm. before. I was going to do my research for the Cassavetes episode. Read the whole book. Watch that three-hour documentary that's in the box set. And then probably rewatch all of his movies that I have. When I was redoing my ranked list for all the movies we'd seen so far, I actually bumped up the Killing of the Chinese Bookie a little bit. I, that is the one I think about the most, and it's the only one I uh, I've seen it once. And the next time I watch it, I'll probably rewatch it for the next Cast of Eddie's episode. I'm gonna rewatch uh, the longer cut because the Blu-ray has both. All right, so should we go into the favorites? Yeah, favorites. You want me to go first? Or you want to go first? I'll go first. So I'm going to put a tie for my favorite. Uh, Cheat a little here. Uh, You'll see why. I'm going to put two films by the great Taiwanese director, Edward Yang. Yee Yee and A Brighter Summer Day. That's okay. That's fair. As what I I collectively think those two are the best things I've seen on the list so far. It's weird because they are both different. But I do kind of lump them together as well. They're both very similar rankings. Uh, as of right now, I have Yee Yee at four and A Brighter Summer Day at six. Top ten, good. Yeah, top. Uh, the more and more I think about it, I'm sure A Brighter Summer Day is above five, which is Nashville. But I got to think about it some more. I, I recently rewatched A Brighter Summer Day. and For the record, he watched it twice for the podcast, which... In- for both uh, that movie's four hours long mm-hmm. so jacob this year alone has spent 12 hours watching a brighter summer day that that episode in particular uh when we reviewed a brighter summer day we had uh, daisuke beppu who is uh, great rather famous on the criterion uh, discord uh, he's a youtuber he, wonderful wonderful guy it was a joy to have him on the, the podcast we do have guests every once in a while. I'm going to make a quick yes, side note here. Quite often, most of the time, they are our friends from film school. Various corners of the internet. Yes. Our friend Nick, our, our friend Nate, East Coast Chandler. 
East Coast. Sometimes have two Chandlers on the podcast. Those episodes are fun. Those are fun. We we do every once in a while try to like branch out and ask people we don't know to be on the podcast. We should do that more too. We should. We should. What is what what has been the like the biggest surprises on the list in terms of what you love the most and what you hate or didn't like the most. Uh, I, for note, I've seen most of the films on the BFI list already, which is good mm-hmm. because I want to give a lot of them the rewatch that they deserve. And a lot of them have like been bumped up. The biggest surprise for me so far was the earrings of Madame De, which was just still a delightful film and one of my favorites it's we've great. seen so far. Beautiful, romantic, elegant, posh. That was early. That was episode two. Was it really? Two or three, yeah. You know, you know, my biggest surprise. Hmm. This movie I actually watched before because on your recommendation, the first time I watched it, I was not huge into it. But I have really grown to like the Wild Bunch. Ah. I quite enjoy the Wild Bunch now. It's in my top ten for this list, right under Madame de. Would you look at that? Under Madame de, above Beau Travail. I still have some films to add to this. I haven't, I haven't added Beau Travail. Travail. Beau Travail. Uh, another reoccurring theme of this podcast is Jacob can't pronounce things for shit. Well, French is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Although the movie we're talking about today, I can pronounce. Yes. Yes. So over the past year on the podcast, has anything changed about your perception of the BFI list, your understanding of your own taste in film, anything like that? Um, I have. Well, this is. I don't know if this is necessarily a this is a change necessarily brought on by the podcast itself. But I've I've gone into watching movies with a completely different mindset because shortly before we started doing this, I was very analytical where I was just I was looking at each movie that I saw, looking at it for what it is, analyzing and then analyzing how I feel based on those observations where now I kind of do something different where I just watch it. Don't think about it until it's over. Just kind of experience what they meant for me to experience. Then I analyze my feelings afterwards hmm. and then try to understand what, why I have those feelings. So like, I feel like two years ago, if I wanted to watch something like a brighter summer day, I just, I would be like, this is entirely too long nothing really happens it's just too many of these small little moments but you know now with my my new perception i can watch something like that and just go how do i even unpack this mm. other than, uh, I, i've also come to appreciate french movies a lot more yes i think that's been the biggest change for me over the the past year is just appreciating french cinema more and kind of moving away from the stereotype of like stuffy and <laughs> pretentious well that 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 sort of goes hand in hand with my the thing i was just talking about where french films don't care about plot they care more about emotions over anything like you know take the movie we watched today or any of Godard's movies and they're not necessarily i mean they have a very bare foundation of plot or something like uh, army of shadows which there's no structure goals but sort of movies that capture a feeling and try to explore that feeling the best they can Mm -hmm. it's very french and i like it now hey hey that's fine we'll we'll get more into godard later because i have my recap of my journeys (laughs) with godard because that he he has been instrumental in my changing of 
interesting uh, perception. For me, it was Truffaut, but we'll get there. For me, this journey throughout the BFI list has been interesting at seeing what the critics and the directors like because they are split up into those and a good few of them are on both lists and some aren't but also like rationalizing to myself like talking through why something is and isn't one of the best films ever made and yeah. being able to really kind of i have a much better sense of what i'm looking for now kind of from a more objective standpoint because we, we've talked a bit about the relationship of influence, like the influence a film has and how much you have to weigh that against how good the execution of the film was. Um, yeah. That's C- like context. Yeah. Context versus, you know, the actual, how does it stand up currently? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some films you, you can weigh the context more. It doesn't need to be as good. And some films on the list, uh, it seems like the the critics and the directors have prioritized the context more, but the film really doesn't hold up as as well as you you would expect from a film on this list. Well, to me, the best movies are the ones that the the ones that most overcome their context. Mm-hmm. Like something like Citizen Kane, I think is still amazing even by today's standards. Whereas something like The Gold Rush, contextually amazing, still some parts that are great. But overall, more of a an antique than a movie. Hmm. It's a good way of putting it. Now, I think if I was really to hone in on the idea of like something on this list that's here for almost sentimental reasons, uh, for kind of the history of film rather than any real merit, is uh, Jean Renoir's A Day in the Country, um, which is yeah. fine. I, I can't is. say anything bad about the film, but one, it's not even a complete film. It seems like something that a lot of people watched at con when it was released in the seventies, when it was like found and restored and released. And they're like, Oh, a new, we get to watch a genre noir film. And like, that's great. I'm with them there, but that doesn't mean and there's a sentimentality kind of reached consensus amongst critics maybe. And that isn't, doesn't necessarily translate to anyone else and certainly doesn't merit being one of the best films ever and made. i mean also let's let's talk about short films in general because oh yeah <laughs> short film we've had that conversation need to be on a different list or something else it's just really hard like it's it's an emotional reaction part of it is like yeah. i get un chien andalou is really influential and it's, it's still kind of out there and weird and new to watch mm-hmm. but at the same time how does how do you justify putting a 20 minute short film which is essentially a different format altogether next to like a, a full-length film it just it seems like you're comparing apples and oranges yeah and while sure it might deserve recognition i like the red shoes where's the red shoes come on guys <laughs> Well, that's the that's what I'm telling you. Every little bit of BS on this list is amplified by the absence of the red shoes. Weren't there others? I feel like there were others that we we found. I don't know, but that's the one that is definitely. But the, the red shoes egregious. is the most egregious one. Yeah, because of the other Powell and Pressburger movies that are on the list. Not saying the other ones are bad. Mm, no, yeah. Colonel Blimp is currently my favorite movie we've discussed in the podcast. That's my number one. Ah, my but, number three. Ah, there you go. But the red shoes, I mean, that's a separate rant. Yeah. Often, too, we will see movies that are lower than we expect. 
I can think very specifically of Casablanca. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have no re- I have no conceivable reason why that's not in the top fifty at the very least, and yet it's all the way down in the eighties or nineties somewhere. I would I would argue Jaws as well. Jaws is great. I can see I can see why the critics went with that, not agreeing with it, but it makes sense because they don't want to they they don't want people to mistake it for high art uh, art uh-huh. and that's uh-huh. i guess one of my biggest criticisms with the, the bfi list so far is that it it, it just seems very elitist yeah people know that already like that's no secret by just looking yeah. at the list you can tell but i i guess when i say that i'm thinking of the films very specifically so i feel like it's a more nuanced way i'm saying it's an elitist film with some nuance my tone <laughs> is trying to communicate that because it does include things that are have little relevance to a modern audience, much less an, a modern film fanatic audience. Like one I always go back to is L'Argent. I like L'Argent. It's in my top I 20 of what we've watched it's so in far. My 12, I think. Yeah. But I like, really? L'Argent? L'Argent? L'Argent is my. Larjon's my 10. <laughs> See, that's good. But, yeah. but I even I admit it's not. Yeah. In the context of all the other movies on the list, it kind of after a while, they blend together because yeah. they are so similar and they are they like the list kind of hones in on a specific type of of foreign film. Yeah. And it's boring, honestly, which I'm good. I know you don't agree with this, but I'm going to cement my point again for anyone who's just listening now. I don't believe that there should be multiple entries from a director. I'm a firm believer of one director, one entry. And I think that would also help cut down on a lot of these these uh, repetitive picks. I think it would, too. But then again, you you can't. I don't think you can justify taking Yee or a brighter summer day off the list. So. Well, yeah. And we only we haven't even gotten to. Many of the directors who are on here twice, quite deservingly. I'm sure. I'm sure Kubrick's on here. At Kubrick least is forward. Kurosawa, Ozu, Mizuguchi. Mizuguchi's on here. You know, another suggestion that I would think that would help this a lot is, um, I feel like there's also a it's like the anti recency bias, mm. where the more recent picks are ones that are like no brainers. There'll be Blood, mm-hmm. Mulholland Drive. <sighs> what else is even kind of cachet? is new yeah okay cachet yeah cachet seems like the kind of thing that in the future i would compare to l'argent it's like the same class of movie that is really really good but kind of fades into the background of cinema yeah doesn't stick out the thing is there i think one thing that could benefit from this kind of aggregation is just kind of a few curveballs you know movies that you can see making ripples in the current film landscape that you kind of want to just give a spotlight towards by throwing it in with these other ones. It may not necessarily live up to those expectations, but a little at least inspire a discussion that is needed. I think another thing that they should do is every major film market in the world, like South Korea, Japan, India, Iran, Every every place that has a thriving film production needs to have an entry. Yeah. Simply for variety. And I, I I think variety of voice in filmmaking does 
to some degree outweighs context, historical context. Yeah. One of the uh, things I can point to is Tukibuki. I think yeah. that's a really great addition to this list. It's not. It like, is. I don't think it's better than quite a few movies on this list. Like <gasps> quality wise, I would I'm rank saying. some things over it, but I would yeah. put Tukibuki on this list. Yeah, same. Above some movies because it is a unique film from the quite frankly underrepresented area of cinema. What about uh, similarly something like Baccarat? Mm. South America is uh, absent from this list, I believe. Yeah. Sorry, Cuba. Mm, that's a Caribbean, but kind of. Oh, <laughs> it's Russia. The other thing, genres. You need to have every genre, every major genre needs to have something on here. So, uh, sorry, pretentious, pretentious film nerds. I'm sorry, but a superhero movie needs to be on here. I would agree. But I feel like the, the the pick is pretty obvious for with most people. There there is only one. It's Joker. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is my way of saying the Dark Knight deserves to be on here. It is. Yeah, I'm trying to think of anything that would even rival it, but no. It, think of it. It was like it's the beginning of the superhero wave. Yeah, and it's really good. It's still, it's probably it's an peak. action film too. So that checks off another kind of genre that is also let's let's not represented forget all of the 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 influences that are very apparent mm-hmm. to anyone like on this list who would be understand you know the, the killing uh, heat stuff like that no i agree i mean if we're being completely honest the, I, there's a there's a lot of movies that i could see b- being yes or no like additions to the list i could see but i could also see them not but the one movie that i We'll put money on right now. Them adding next time is Parasite. That is almost a guarantee at this point. It, it's a no brainer. It's probably going to be the most recent film added. Yeah. To the to the list. And good. South Korea needs to be uh, represented. Agreed. I, I'm going to make one more. This this might be an even hotter take than uh, The Dark Knight. I think The Room should be on here. And I Why? say that with a straight face. I love the fact. That I know you do. I know you that. mean it, but I just I can't agree. <laughs> it is spawned such a large subculture of cinema going or at the very least uncovered it for a more mainstream audience of like B movies, people watching bad movies. It is widely enjoyed by a, a large amount of people. It is. It is historically interesting maybe not important well that but interesting well that's the thing i'll say about that is that movie more than any other movie i think as you know in its category of bad movie yeah um that movie more than any other movie inspires people to understand what happened yeah because i feel like it's a big thing with bad movies is that you don't care about what's happening in the movie but you're dying to know how the fuck this got to you <laughs> So I can see that argument, but I can't see the reality of it where Tommy Wiseau's name is etched into the same list as Godard. Well, look, it it is a part of film history, whether the BFI wants to put it on here or not. I think it is a important film. I think a movie that gives so many people so much joy. You're not wrong. uh, You can't, you shouldn't discount it just because it's so uh, totally It is a cultural landmark. So unironically. I, I would agree, maybe uh, hold off on that. And if it still feels relevant in another 25 years, I think that the argument gets even stronger. Yeah. 
horror is another one that I think is pretty underrepresented. There's things like Don't Look Now and The Shining, but but even even the horror stuff has a very serious art angle to it no i'm with you like those yeah that's why i mentioned them because they are not really horror films yeah anyone who's scared do do you have any uh, stop (laughs) no it's not do you have any things that you would add like horror wise do you have any picks off the top of your head because i have one i suppose this is also a a segue into our a little horror conversation it's october (laughs) it is october no i i've only recently really this month ramped up my viewing of horror films yeah because i i've never been much uh, very into that genre i've gotten more into it yeah uh i know i said i have one in mind but i have at least three Mm. that i think two two i think are no-brainers that need to be added at some point one is kind of my wild card pick the the two that are need to be added and it could be like a a brighter summer day yee situation but both halloween and the thing I feel like are necessary. Hmm. I I have not seen Halloween. I have to watch that. The thing, however, it's a stretch, but I I don't disagree. At, for horror, at least, I think the thing needs to be considered. Considered, um, yes. But my, yes. Yes. My wild card pick, though, is I legitimately think the Blair Witch Project would be pretty incredible on this list. From horror alone, because like I said, with other horror films is that there's the obvious art angle to Mm -hmm. it, where oftentimes it doesn't really feel like they're trying to scare you so much as they are trying to impress you. And if you get frightened along the way, that's a bonus. Yeah. Which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a it's a poor representation for the pure horror genre. Whereas Blair Witch, to me, everything about that is trying to scare you and it succeeds and it has it is on the surface very unconcerned with formalism and technique. But if you look into it, there's a lot going into that. And I think that's the kind of perfect mixture that would make for a critic's pick for a horror movie. Mm. And I feel like in recent years, it's kind of gone up as far as like the cultural retrospective on it has kind of uh, turned it more into favor of it not just being a, a shitty gimmick because it did inspire a lot of gimmicky movies, a lot of which are terrible. But I invite anyone to think the found footage genre is garbage to actually watch what they do in the Blair Witch because it's very interesting. I'll have to watch that. It's good. Hey, no jump scares either. Ah, even better. Even There's better. not a single jump scare. So comedies. Comedy is another, yeah, that's another uh, genre that is criminally underrepresented. There are some movies on the list that are considered comedic, but they're not comedies. Well, I disagree hmm? because of Chaplin. Hmm. Okay, I guess. I still agree that it's underrepresented. Silent film. See, I, I, silent film is like its own genre in and of itself. It is. I almost want to say like it's it's somewhere in between. Like we said, like short films are a different medium altogether. Yeah. And then there's actual movies. And then somewhere in between on this spectrum, closer to actual movies are silent films. Yeah. But they are they do feel like very distinct. So, yes, Chaplin has made good comedies. The comedies are on this list. But I, I mean, like our modern sense of what a comedy is. Is there any with Marx Brothers? No, I don't think so. Interesting. Yeah, continue. Oh, I don't know. Well, I just wanted to see if you had a, a comedy suggestion. The- oh, 
tangentially comedies like uh, yeah casablanca is pretty funny and when, when you it is some of the quotes snappy dialogue well okay now I'm trying to think what else might be i don't know if this counts but i think a no-brainer as well and not only is it a no-brainer because it's uh it's one of the most revered comedies of the last 25 years but it's also one that has been given the the critical uh nod of approval and that would be the big lebowski <laughs> i mean come on <laughs> i i don't know why i didn't think you were gonna say that i had nothing i was like what is chandler gonna say i should have known i know I that known. if this were to ever go through the bfi uh mark kermode would be standing at the gates to not let it in but i do think legitimately not only as a, an artsier work it also is straight up hilarious but that's the thing is that i don't know if, could you consider that a, a, a straight comedy there is no straight comedy to put on this film. Yeah, on okay. this list. It doesn't exist. I might I might put The Grand Budapest Hotel as a it is a comedy heavy yeah. film that is not a comedy. It is. That 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 would satisfy I think my requirement for that one for is a hundred percent deservedly. That is a movie that I always think I have bias towards, but every single time I see it, I I am convinced even more so that it is one of the greatest movies ever made. Oh, I'm sorry. There is a comedy, a straight comedy on this list. It's Solo, 120 <laughs> Days of Sun. There's a there's a pretty funny flick higher up. I think it's called Schindler's List. Oh, that's another one. Where, where the fuck is Schindler's List? Why is it is not it on, on this? Here? It's not on this list. No. Oh, I thought it would be. No, they don't like Steven Spielberg. I'm convinced. Well, yeah, Jaws seems like a reluctant. I always forget Jaws. But even then, even you can agree, it should be a little higher. It's towards the bottom, and it's, I mean, come on, it's Jaws. Which also could be considered a horror. I know a lot of people consider that a horror movie, which I can agree. Kind of. But again, it's not pure horror, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah, as far as pure comedies go, the closest I can think is The Big Lebowski. Because aside from the comedy, which is, it's very specific. <laughs> yeah. It's There's a lot of formalism that I think elevates it past comedy. If I were to... Here, here's my my hot take, which isn't really a take at all. It's just like if you were to hold like uh, a gun to my head and say a straight comedy that is making gag jokes as fat as much as possible, got to give it to Airplane. It's, well, just, yeah. it's just clearly yeah, it's the most like jokes per minute movie of all time, and it's still it's yeah. still funny. People watch it today. There, there's a lot hilarious. of movies that you could use as a, a way to sort of dip your toes in the water. Airplane, Monty Python, The Holy Grail. Uh, life of brian blazing saddles blazing i forgot blazing saddles i could see on this list that seems even more like it gets it it ages like a fine wine it really does. it it shouldn't it shouldn't still be relevant as a film but it is i'm surprised okay i don't i'm not i don't love this movie but i am surprised that them being british didn't put the, the lady killers on here hmm. i was trying to think hey. of other british films oh uh, i'm gonna mention this uh right now because i'm gonna forget if i don't i was looking on letterboxd so on letterboxd i am a patron so i can get the the stats and i was looking at stats for 2020 and they give you a map and it shows you all the countries that you've seen movies from and i i look at the map and i'm like i've seen a movie from india this year i don't remember watching a movie so i click on india and it's 1917 because it's what? movies produced in the country 
And apparently 1917 was produced in India with like an Indian producer. I don't know. But I found that very funny to click on the country India. And then I got that movie. Weird. Yeah. I mean, a lot. If you click on uh, your French films watched, you'll get a lot of movies that are not from France because the French fund a lot of movies. Technically, Dune or not Dune Arrival is a Canadian movie. Is Blade Runner on this list? Yes. Yes, it is. So that's the BFI list. We'll we'll have more conversations about this later on, probably when we get to 50. Yeah, we'll do. It'll be a, a gradual reflection on this list. Yeah. So, yeah. Do we want to do we want to check in? So usually we uh, the way these things sometimes go, depending on it's very loose format until we get to the movie very too. loose format. Uh, we check in about what we've been watching the past uh, couple weeks. What have we been watching? I've watched quite a bit, but if you want to go first, you can. Okay, I'm going to kind of do like a lightning speed round. I'm not. I'll probably do the same. I think I'm not really going to focus too much on, on the horror. I've been watching a lot of South Korean movies, which is really great. Uh, the Criterion Channel added the, the South Korean New Wave uh, collection, and they have mm. uh, quite a few movies on there. And I think I'm going to, finish that whole collection which will really like round out my experience with that era in south korean filmmaking which is it's been nice i've seen a few park jan wook movies i finished the the vengeance trilogy uh, old boy sympathy for lady vengeance and uh, mr vengeance what is the best one well old boy is the best one uh (laughs) sympathy for lady vengeance is a very interesting movie it's really quirky interesting just like an old boy. Yeah. I don't think Park Jan-wook has a good grasp on pacing. No. Like. That's how I felt about The Handmaiden too. He he doesn't understand how to pace things. And yet somehow his his movies are still good. But that's like a common thread I see. Like uh, you, you need to like lead, build, go somewhere. <laughs> Tell me where you're going or, or what. Can I expect something? I don't know. But the, the, the structure of Sympathy for Lady Vengeance is really strange. It's really interesting. I watched, uh, speaking of South Korean movies, I watched Thirst, which is a vampire movie with starring uh, Song Kang-ho. That's a Park Chan-wook movie, isn't it? It is, yes. <laughs> it's kind of, it's like a black comedy almost. <laughs> like there's some really... I've been wanting to watch this one for a while. <laughs> I'm going to try to describe one of the most insane visuals I've ever seen. So they both kind of spoiler but not really they're vampires so they murder people yeah and one of their murder victor victims comes back to haunt them like mentally their first yeah. one their first victim there's song Kang ho and then uh, his girlfriend and they're in the process they're on a waterbed song Kang ho and his girlfriend is are in the process of making out and eventually gonna make love but then the guy they murdered uh just appears in the middle of them like they're sandwiched all together <laughs> and he's the, the guy's just making like funny faces and is like dripping wet because they drowned him and it it's the most one of the most absurd i just had to like burst out laughing because it's so absurd the visual <laughs> that's what i remember about that film the most that and the fact that it was paced poorly <laughs> that is that is the i liked it though the beautiful charm of south korean film yeah is that they find humor in the weirdest spots of any movie like i'll I'll still say 
quick spoiler for Parasite. I, I saw a lot of movies in 2019, but there's not a single moment I laughed at harder than when the housekeeper fell down the stairs and hit her head. I don't think I laughed that hard in a movie in a very long time. Tonal jugglers, those South Koreans. The only thing other of note, I mentioned Barking Dogs Never Bite, but we're going to be talking, I'll talk about that a bit more in our Bong Joon-ho retrospective episode coming up sometime soon. Stay tuned going for all, that. Going through all the Bong hits. Uh, yeah. I watched House, House again. House which a, a great Halloween film. It got so much better the, the the third time. I tried watching it once. Didn't get all the way through. It was too weird for me. Uh, I watched it all the way through last year for the first time. And then I watched it this year. And I was really, really vibing with it this year. It's it's weird aesthetic. I like it a lot. It is a movie that um, I when I watched it the first time, I'm like, I know I like this. I don't know how much I like it because I literally can't process it all. Yeah, that was it. It was like, I, I don't. I can't know what to think about this because it's so different. And so it's very weird out there that you your reaction is bound to be different than what it might be. If, whether you if you're watching something, you could process a bit better. All I remember is the really cheesy, wonderful songs in the beginning. Mm-hmm. The piano eating her hands and the guy who turns into a pile of bananas. <laughs> It's so weird. I, I love that movie. I need to get it on Criterion. You don't. Oh, no. I was going to get it go. in the flash sale, but I was. Uh, I was saving ha- my money. Well, that's another reason why it's persisted for so long. It has one of the most iconic Criterion covers to date. It's very iconic to, yeah. to the point where, you know, I, I recently purchased. I put it in the laundry. My my Janus Films long sleeve tee um, as of all the 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 like clothing merchandise they sell, it's nothing but Criterion and Janus film stuff, except for the one only film related article of clothing, which is an orange Houseu shirt. That is how iconic that movie is. Yes, but it's interesting that you say that the first time you shut it off because that is a movie that, you know, most movies that are that weird, it's a descent. <laughs> it starts that movie just right drops off, you into right off the it. bat. Just like it, it's so disorienting. So incredibly disorienting. And I like if you want to like culture shock your like mainstream film buddy, like you have a friend, they watch movies every once in a while. Only the ones that are at the big movie theaters, that kind of friend. Everyone, everyone knows these people. Everyone does. They outnumber um, us 10 to one, although you would never know if you're if you run in the art house circles. But if you really want to give them culture shock of like movies Play yeah. in a house, house for last year at Mary. How- <laughs> That's <laughs> a culture shock. No, no, you do a double feature of Houseu and Eraserhead. That's an interesting double feature. <laughs> I feel like if you were to watch both of those movies, if you show both those movies back to back to a person that you know, like you said, only watches a select few movies, they will wonder what the hell is going on with those select few movies they see. Great double feature. I mean, yeah, I'm gonna watch House Two again this week. I have a few more horror movies I need to watch. So that's that's it for me. I have a very specific question for you uh, to get yeah. your discussion going. We can put this off, but I recommended you watch Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, and you finally watched it. So I'm very curious to hear what you think of that. This is not necessarily um, uh, an opinion on the movie itself, but more so Herzog who I feel like over the years has become more of a documentary filmmaker than a narrative filmmaker. I don't even know the last narrative film he made. 
But I do find it interesting because he made one this past year. Oh. Uh, it's like, did he? Family business LTE. <laughs> I feel like Herzog is one of those people like Godard, where you everyone remembers their early stuff and they're always shocked to find out they're still making movies and a lot of them. I love those directors where you're like, still alive, still working. But but Herzog's different because he still shows up. He's in The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. He's kind of he he is one of those people like Spike Lee and David Lynch. Well, not David Lynch, but Spike Lee, where I'm like, your movies are pretty good, but you as a person makes your movies so much more interesting. <laughs> yeah, Family Romance LLC, which he made in Japan. I I'm happy for Warner, but yeah, um, because uh, of the two movies I've seen so far, which is this and A Gear the Wrath of God, he shoots very documentary like. It's like he he. Before every shot, he ran up a mountain to catch the actor who was trying to escape from him. <laughs> and that's every shot. Yeah. But, you know, it's very static. It, it's very wide lenses that capture the the scenery around. It's it's a lot of shots where um, I, my my thing with movies is that I can always tell an ex- inexperienced filmmaker because they show things that you don't need to see. And nine times out of ten, that thing I'm talking about is people getting in cars and leaving <laughs> and arriving in cars opening night <laughs> <laughs> but for Werner Herzog it's different because he films a lot of things like that just people walking but he captures the breathtaking nature around it like there's an amazing shot like the the shot of the main guy i don't know his name making his trek to Nosferatu's castle mm-hmm. which it takes him like 35 minutes to get there and then really not much happens on the way up there. It's not until he actually meets Nosferatu that things like start rolling. But I'm never disinterested because everything is just so beautiful. The countryside, the, the locations, the costuming is just. But the actual movie itself, um, I really liked it. This is my only Nosferatu adaptation I've seen. I wanted to watch the silent one before the spooky season has ended. Spooky. Um, but... I think a huge reason of the two movies that I've seen so far that uh, I'm drawn to his movies is that Klaus Kinski is terrifying. Yes. He has a very aggressive aura. <laughs> Which, you know, when you when you have Herzog behind the camera edging him on. Yeah. Oh, my God. How could you not? It's interesting to me because, again, I, I've read a few um, adaptations of Nosferatu, just what they focus on. because They're all largely the same. But the fact that this one focuses more on the plague that Nosferatu brings is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also the movie that made me realize that I would be much more scared if I didn't think rats were adorable. Because there is a lot of rats in this movie. Oh, there's a lot, yeah. Like, to the point where I wonder how he got that many rats. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just imagine... Uh... Uh, Werner like he's in like dark alleys paying like black marketeers to like give him boxes of rats he's going to his rat breeder that he, he has like, put up in a basement somewhere gets a new box every week have you ever um seen or heard that audio clip where Werner Herzog reacts to somebody who does an amazing impression of him no I have not well it's a comedian named Paul F. Tompkins who does a really good Werner Herzog impression where he went on this comedy podcast as Werner Herzog and as in Werner Herzog's voice, he's like, I have a presentation to make to you. And he, he's like, I'm going to read you aloud a review I made on Yelp of this Traitor Joe's on Hollywood Boulevard. 
and <laughs> and people are laughing as as Warner Herzog comes to read his Yelp review, and the first sentence is "Madness reigns." <laughs> I've looked it up. This is now on my top of things to do is to listen to this. It's really funny. But yeah, Werner Herzog is a very interesting guy. This movie is good. I can't explain to you why, because it's a very strange movie that's very light on plot. It's it's, it's one so... of like the great atmospheric films. It really is. I'd put it in the same category as like Army of Shadows in terms of like creating just a mood. Something like, yeah, Army of Shadows, Stalker, I was also reminded a lot of. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's not necessarily about the story of the performances, but it's just the fact that he is, manages to frame all of this in these seemingly otherworldly places. Um, so overall, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Uh, I think I like a gear more. Like, actually, in retrospect, I really like a gear. The wrath hmm. of God. Um, it's not as interesting thematically, but it's just so atmospheric. It's spooky. It is genuinely spooky. Like there's a, I thought of an idea of a movie while I was watching this, uh, just a, a, a ship makes a voyage from point A to point B and people just keep dying on the ship and they can't find who is the killer because I thought that part of the story was my favorite part because hmm. th- that shot of the, the ship coming into the harbor and it looks like it's just sailing and it just sort of smashes into the side of the harbor and it slows down as it like breaks against the walls. And then you can see the captain like lifeless and tied to the steering wheel. I'm like, this is amazing. Um, but yeah, overall, very good. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, Klaus Kinsey is even more terrifying when he's doing less. So what else have you been watching? Besides that, I did watch the Blair Witch Project. That's why I brought it up. I do highly recommend the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I watched a movie <laughs> called uh, Bless You. Uh, I watched a movie called Live Scream. <laughs> which is, you know... It's Why a, did you watch this? I watched it because it's similar to a feature film that I wrote and I'm trying to make. Um, but Live Scream is a video, uh, is a movie about a guy, a streamer who does a let's play of a video game that is killing his audience. It starts off really interesting and gets progressively dumber, but they commit to it so much that I I end up liking it, even though it's not good. Uh, I watched The Wolf of Snow Hollow, uh, the new film from Jim Cummings, whose Thunder Road, I think, is an amazing movie. It is good. It is Fargo meets Zodiac with his weird blend of darkly comedic comedy. little messy. Um, You can feel the transition between indie backyard filmmaking and more studio stuff but it's still good i rewatched one cut of the dead this is the greatest zombie movie of all time moving on rewatched the grand budapest hotel good movie it is it's it's one of those movies that i think every time that i watch it again i'm just gonna get bored of it and i don't i just love it even more i watched it with the, the commentary this time which is really funny because it's between um wes anderson one of his producers and um jeff goldblum <laughs> hmm and it's it's a it's a fun thing uh my favorite line i think i mentioned to you um in the group chat but it's just when um gustav uh finally escapes from prison along with a few of his cellmates and he meets zero and he introduces his cellmates to zero and zero to his cellmates but one of his cellmates was murdered trying to kill the guards that spotted them and he very nonchalantly points to zero and says gunther was slain in the catacombs (laughs) 
There's so many good lines. I, I couldn't even pick one if you that movie's beyond perfect i rewatched maholland drive which is a movie that i had not seen in almost two years was this your second viewing it was my second viewing maholland drive and i've seen i've seen every other david lynch movie that i really enjoy like three or four times at this point but Mm -hmm. maholland drive i've only seen once and um maholland drive is a masterpiece. I don't need to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. You know that. Yeah. I know that. BFI knows that. But it's also a movie that I feel like I had the exact same experience the the second time, where the first time I'm watching it, I didn't know what was going on. I thought it was kind of cheesy. And then that second part of the movie kicks in, where you start to understand the first part, and I'm like amazed by it. And I felt that way the second time, too, where I knew where it was going, so I still could pick up on a little of the intricacies and the subtleties, but there's still a few moments where I'm like... This is just weird. But then once it gets recontextualized, I felt even stronger this time that this is a masterpiece and one that I really don't think anyone's going to ever fully be able to explain. No, that it, it, I find it infinitely uh, satisfying that this Mulholland Drive is one of the, the greatest films ever made, which means that uh, Billy Ray Cyrus is in one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> that that is that is one experience in this movie that was almost a complete uh, repeat from the first time. I always forget Billy Ray Cyrus is in this movie. Yep. And that's the thing is that the genius part of this movie is Billy Ray Cyrus is not a good actor. But but in this context, that it's this dream world. Mm. It makes perfect sense. But like this movie is also terrifying. Like I didn't oh, think yeah. of it as a Halloween pick, but God, I still... The one thing, the one benefit of the best benefit of seeing it a second time and knowing where it goes is that when you know where it goes, I don't think there's a single scene that fills me with as much like anxiety and like torture as the diner scene. No, I mean, that that scene has become infamous at this point for for that moment in particular. And it doesn't doesn't that really is, lose its power. No, it doesn't. It just gets better when you know it's coming because it's it's like the character who knows what's coming. But as he sees it sort of start to unravel in front of him, you get this feeling of despair. And even you, as somebody who's seen the movie and knows where it's going, even when you put the pieces together, it's just, oh, God, it's terrifying. But yes, masterpiece. Great movie. And the last one I watched was uh, Drunken Angel. Hmm. Akira Kurosawa's Drunken Angel. Um, This is a very good movie. Um, the The thing I find most interesting about Kurosawa is that there's a lot of barriers to entry. For most films, black and white's a barrier to entry. Mm. It being old is a barrier to entry. Uh, foreign language is a barrier to entry. I'm not saying that's for us. I'm saying for most people in general no, who, yeah. who aren't as passionate as we are, that's a big barrier to entry. Kurosawa is interesting because I feel like most of his movies, this one in like high and low, you can show people those movies and within like the first five minutes, I think they can be hooked. I think he is such a master at filmmaking that I think he can transcend those boundaries for most people. There's some people who don't care and just won't watch it because of those barriers to entry. But I think he is so effective at what he does that most people could at least be interested. Yeah. Not, not all of his movies. No. Like even as a fan, Ron was a slog. I like Ron, but it's a slog. Ron is, is no such thing. It's not a slog. It's it's a wonderful film. Please watch it. Don't listen to Chandler. 
But yes, Drunken Angel, very good. As much as I love Toshiro Mifune, and he is great in this movie and all the movies that he's in, my favorite Kurosawa actor is Takashi Shimura, who is a little more varied in his roles. Everyone, but... when they first find Kurosawa, they gravitate towards Mifune, obviously. And then as you watch more and more, you gravitate towards Takashi Shimura. Which, yeah, he, he's in just as many as um Oh, Mifune yeah, a is. lot. Uh, but my current favorite Kurosawa is Akiru, and he's obviously the star of Akiru. He's also, I think, the most interesting character in The Seven Samurai. But yeah, he's he's great in this movie. I, I this is it's it's a little messy. There's a really nice dream sequence, and there's also like there's there's one shot in particular that it's also surprisingly gory for Kurosawa, where Mifune confronts the returning gang member at the end, and he just sort of like barfs blood. <laughs> Mm. it's like a big a puddle of blood that hits this. the floor it looks straight out of the evil dead ah like it looks very out of place not only for kurosawa but for this time period but i recommend it it's short it's brisk um it's good you can't go wrong with kurosawa. Y- you can't you just can't that's everything unless well i also watched the the seventh or sixth on cinema at the cinema oscar special <laughs> yeah, I don't, but we don't need to talk about that see <laughs> previous episodes if you want to hear about that so this week on the BFI Sight and Sound 2012 list, uh, we are watching uh, Vivre Sa Vie, My Life to Live. It is a film by Jean-Luc Godard from 1962. It's on the director's list. It is not on the critics list. It's number 74, adjusted for inflation. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So on the on the First BF, Godard. On the Sight and Sound list, uh, they there's ties all over the place. And so I was like, I, well, I can't do a tie. So adjusted yeah. in 74. It could be, I don't know. So I hate Godard or I hated <laughs> Godard uh, when we started this list. And it is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this update is our very first episode. We, we, we take quite a few shots at Godard. Yeah. And I can't remember which episode it was, but it was fairly recent where I talked, I went through a binge of Godard's filmography recently and I've come to a new understanding of him as a director, and I quite like him now. Uh, that's a little background for that. But uh, Godard is uh, talk about someone with a, a large barrier to entry. Yes. For the uninitiated, this is Chandler. Chandler has much less history with Godard, so maybe maybe let us know where where you're coming from, and then what you thought of my, my the film. brief history with Godard is I watched Breathless and I hated it. I've, I've read interviews with him and I hated them. Uh, and then the most egregious of his crimes was not seeing Agnes Varda at the end of Faces Places, which just signified my loathing of him. Still haven't forgiven um, him for that, but no. So that's why I don't really say I hate Godard because I've only seen one other of his movies. Um, but that was at the time where I was a lot less into the French New Wave in general. And since then, I've come around to it quite a bit. So going into this, I I expected to be a little compromised. My my opinions were going to shift. And they did. Good. Okay, that's it. That's the podcast, folks. Uh you heard it here first. Chandler likes Vivre Savi. I do like Vivre Savi. I do too. I, I, I do enjoy it. 
Uh, Viva Savi is just it's a story of a French woman. Um, her name is played by Anna Karina. Anna Karina, who was Godard's wife at the time as Nana Klein Frankenheim. What Klein Frankenheim. Yep. Anna Nana Klein Frankenheim, who is a young. Also, this is one of those uh, moments where I just did a, a, a unconscious double feature of this in Mulholland Drive. OK, there, there's some similarities there. Sure. Um, so Nana is uh, a French woman who is aspiring to be an actress. And in a uh, 12 tableaus, 12 little vignettes of her life, she goes from that to being a prostitute. Yes, that's the movie. <laughs> so I, I watched this movie earlier this year. I, I don't think I, I didn't plan on it. It was kind of a spur of the moment decision because the loft yeah. was playing it. And I was like, oh, you know. Maybe maybe it might be interesting to see a Godard in the cinema. Uh, now, did, did this my... act as a sort of catalyst to your then re-examining of his movies? No. Okay. But it was like it was the early warning signs of my changing opinion. <laughs> uh, not, I watched it uh, in the movie yeah. theater. Uh, took my friend. Um, I fell asleep <laughs> in the theater. Now. At the time, I think I might have blamed Godard, but it wasn't Godard's fault. I was just tired that day. It was late. Uh, it's not Godard, even on his best of days, isn't the most engaging of directors. No. So he didn't help, but it wasn't his fault. And so Jacob Coffin comes up to you and says, "I there's this movie by this director. I think he's pretty good. Or maybe you didn't say that. Jacob Coffin comes up to you and asks you, do you want to see this French film with me? You go. You go and you fall asleep. <laughs> I'm very good at hiding uh, sleep. I can sleep like just sitting up in a movie theater, looking mostly ahead. You'd have to like actually look at my eyes to, to tell if I'm sleeping. If I want to sleep, I leave. Doesn't matter. Continue. So I liked it, I guess. Like I was a bit harsh on it, but I overall I kind of liked it. And yeah, because I was kind of riding the idea that I didn't care for Godard, I was maybe a bit more harsh than i uh, should have been on it yeah and this most recent time i did kind of loved it it's great i it i is. enjoyed watching it it was it wasn't perfect it's no godard is a uh he kind of goes out there and he does his own thing and so sometimes it is boring because he is he just kind of gets too involved in what he's doing sometimes yeah um but other times it works and it's really uh it's fun cinema to watch particularly when you know about movie making well that's the thing is that i think i watched this movie twice i watched it sunday morning and then um monday afternoon at work i had some busy work i had to do and i had an opportunity to watch things on my phone as i did it so i decided okay i will watch it again with commentary I love commentary, watching movies with the commentary, but only if it is with people directly involved with making the movie because critic commentary tends to just bore me because it's just them saying, this is what this director is doing and this is what it means. It's not, it's not engaging to me. Um, but it was interesting listening to somebody sort of unravel Godard's mania uh, because I think Godard in the tamest sense is a provocateur. In a very tame sense, not like somebody like Lars von Trier. He's 
a provocateur of formalism. Mm. He is a provocateur of just he wants you to question his methods. And there are some moments we do. (laughs) There are some moments where I enjoy those questions. Um, I feel like the intro credits I find very bizarre. Where it's just a profile of her face with music sort of randomly stopping and, you know, the, uh, and that this, whole first scene where it's shot from behind their heads. All this stuff was was much more charming to me on this second viewing. Yeah. Charming. And I like the, the first time first... it was like, oh, Godard, it, it felt flashy. Like he was like, oh, yeah. like, OK, we all can shoot things from like the way you're not supposed to i i too studied filmmaking uh but but what are you what are you trying to do here but it's another thing where it's context needs to be taken into yeah and for me it was a process of like getting over my initial reaction to be able to have like a genuine emotional reaction with it it was was one of those things that when i watched the first time i liked it there were parts i really liked there were parts that i hated but overall i liked it and then I watched again the commentary and that commentary helped me to understand why exactly I like the parts that I like. Um, like um, the fact that most of this movie takes place in cafes mm. with just people talking, mm-hmm. but Godard shifts it, mixes it up so many times that it never feels that way. Um, Godard also has a, a deep understanding of this character and the things that this character represents. So seeing her navigate the outside world and the people around, I get that. But there's also things that we did not need to see her write the entire letter. I, I liked that this time around. I, oh, it, it might've put me to sleep the first time though. So <laughs> is that where you fell asleep around there? I don't, I don't remember where I fell asleep is the thing. Um, it was like end of the first third. Anyway. So, the thing with to go back to your statement on uh, the character, I think Godard's greatest weakness and the thing that prevents most people from getting into his work is his characters, because yes. uh, quite frankly, he's terrible at writing uh, psychologically interesting and emotionally engaging characters. Not always like that's that's an overgeneralization and it's not even necessarily a criticism. It's just something that is lacking from some of his films. And yeah. characterized in a way that is different than what you're expecting. So sometimes it's just, it's different, but that's not to say that it's not there. And this one, I think Viva Savi, uh, Anna Karina, and their character Nana is probably Godard's most interesting character. This is his only real full-on, like singular character study yeah. of a person, which makes it, more engaging than a lot of his movies well that's that's the thing i brought this up to you yesterday but um there is an anecdote from the commentary about one of the actors that godard was directing where he the actor pressured godard wanted to know his motivations what his character was about what he was thinking and godard just told him to do a bunch of gestures didn't want to go any deeper than that and i agree because i feel like character for godard is just another tool Mm mm-hmm it's just another thing to play with. Uh, and that's why I think it almost feels like the character of Nana is interesting by accident. <laughs> because it's not necessarily her herself. There are there are things that are interesting about her. I think um, one thing that's interesting is that she's brought up as this character who wants to um, be an actress. 
and immediately just the way that she gives off those lines or talks about it, it, it seems centered on uh, vanity. She wants mm. to be known. She wants to be famous. She wants to just be glamorized. But when she goes to the scene, uh, the movie to watch Joan of Arc, she, that scene which is a pretty famous scene. Her watching Joan of Arc and then the sort of reaction shot of her reacting to Joan of Arc. Um, there's obviously parallels between her and Joan of Arc, but there's also for me, that's when I realized, OK, she doesn't want to just be a movie star. She wants to be able to convey these feelings that she can. She's more interested in the technique of acting and the possibilities of it. It's not it's not like a means to an end. It's not a road to success for her. It's just something that she's legitimately passionate about. Um, but I feel like a majority of what makes this character interesting is just what happens to her, not what she is. And maybe it's a little bit of how she reacts to it. I was going to say um, how she reacts to things. Uh, really interesting. Uh, there's a scene where one a guy in one another cafe scene. There's is, a few. It's like, is, is she a lady or is she a tramp? And the bartender is like, go up to her and insult her if she... Uh, gets angry she's a tramp if she uh, smiles she's a lady and he goes up and insults her and it, th- her reaction to that is very charming because she slowly yeah. like brings out this she laughs at him essentially and you, you can tell from the film particularly like the opening credits which are profile views and frontal views of her face that Kadar just loves looking at her i mean clearly like they were in a relationship and you yeah. know that she does have a very interesting face just to watch and half the the joy of the film is just watching her do things for me it's those those moments towards the end that sort of lose me yeah um now i feel like this is gonna be an unpopular maybe this is where we have a split take okay. but i found the scene of the philosopher insufferable ding 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 we have a split take ladies and gentlemen this is actually rarer than it it may appear um, I, the last like three chapters of this to me are just insufferable yeah it and the it, first nine are amazing the ending is the issue with the film um i would actually say that the the scene with her and the philosopher after having seen a great many godard films godard uses his films and uses his quote-unquote characters as like mouthpieces for philosophy and there are some movies where it's just like they're just spouting philosophy and they're just line after line. And at some point it becomes just nonsense. Like you you can't comprehend it as it's going along at you. And the scene of her and the philosopher in the cafe is a Godard philosophy scene done right. It's the best example of him. Interesting. Like that. Like imagine that. But with. Like they have characters. The old man has a personality to him. You're invested there's, in her. There's a dynamic. Yeah. 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 That doesn't exist in most uh, other times that Godard. I'm overgeneralizing again. Uh, so apologies if I get this wrong. But I feel like that's that's a good example. And the ironic thing is the very next scene is a bad example because then you have that. That's even worse. Her and the guy. And it's just like, why, why are you throwing more? Which not only is bad just because of what the scene is, but the guy is voiced by Godard. Yeah. <laughs> that that's where I was like, 
that scene and particularly like I might not mind it as much if it didn't come directly after a, like a long philosophical monologue scene. Like, yeah. Break it up a bit, which is why like the pacing kind of like grinds to a halt, particularly when you cut to that scene. But that's where the pacing needs to pick up. <laughs> right. And then she just kind of dies. Spoiler alert. Which is also dumb because that I, I understand there is a certain amount of of narrative flow that you are just can't expect from a Godard movie. Yeah. But I had no idea what was going on until it actually happened. I don't need a full scene saying, look, we're going to sell you to another pimp. I just want to know why she's getting in the car. I just love how the one pimp uses her as a meat shield. The other pimp doesn't have bullets in his gun. So another one. It's shoots, such an awkward scene. Like, I think they're shooting at the guy that's using her as a meat shield, but they end up shooting her and don't shoot the guy. And then the guy ends up shooting her that was using her as a meat shield before he leaves. And then it ends. And then it just like this is one of the more abrupt endings where it's just like the end. Which I like that last shot. I like that she's essentially it's a wide back shot of just her dead in the street. Mm -hmm. I get it. But it 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 comes at a very low point in the movie and it just comes out of nowhere and then it's over and you're not going out on a high note. I would say for me, the the joy, I would agree. The joy of this film is the first most of like the nine first nine chapters, ten chapters. Yeah. From like a filmmaking perspective, it's so much fun watching this. Like the way Godard shoots things, the the fact that like the very first scene is all from behind her. Yeah. It's it's just fun and playful. And the, the there's a lot of like for a Godard film, Godard's usually pretty subtle with his his uh shot composition. Like he he doesn't yeah. go all out like some uh pta tracking shot but there's a surprising amount of like long takes and great dolly shots reflection yeah. shots um mon there's a montage in this film which, which is rare amazing. rare for godard of the this guy is explaining prostitution laws in france and paris and it's really interesting it's a great scene yeah it, I was just noticing more. The first time was the, the same way. This time even more. Just noticing things that are like, wow, that's an interesting filmmaking choice. Yeah. That almost like this is a movie that kind of inspires me filmmaking wise at some points. This this is where I understood the appeal of Godard in mm. general. Good. Because I, I feel like a lot of movies you're it, you're dissecting story characters, various camera angles but godard is telling everything you need to know through the actual filmmaking techniques and i find m there's much more to discuss about how he chooses to shoot the scenes than what the scenes are themselves yeah one of a great interesting decision is a lot of the action in this movie is completely off camera there's a scene where uh nana talks about how she was she stole some money essentially and then got arrested mm -hmm. and we don't see any of that it, she just tells the story secondhand later on in the police station the which guy is gets like, shot yeah it like but it only comes in bloody if you want to uh that is something they tell you not to do in film school don't like mm -hmm. recount stories later on show us the act show us the interesting stuff yeah um, 
which Kadar didn't do. And then right later on, there is a scene where um, she's in a cafe. This is probably my favorite shot in the film, maybe that or the record store shot. Uh, the record store shot is my favorite shot. But she's sitting in a cafe alone. Uh, lots of great shots of her alone. But she's sitting alone and there's gunshots outside and the camera's just static on her. The gunshots are off screen. No one would ever tell you to do this. No, never do this in your movie. Uh, but Godard does it and it's so interesting. And then the camera like pans. It dollies back a little and then it pans to the front of the, the store. And Godard chops up that pan and does jump cuts in the middle of the shot. Yeah. To the rhythm of the machine gun. And then you see what happens outside. And there's a guy with a gun. He's holding it to another uh, guy. And then the camera like briefly sees them and then it tracks someone else inside the store. And you don't see any more of the violence outside. And it's just really interesting how he like frames that all away. And mm -hmm. it's hard to justify this as like someone outside of like a really good film knowledge really enjoying. Although they might. This is one of the, those Godards where there's enough have, here that it's not a complete yeah. waste of time. This is one of those Godards where you have a chance of just someone liking it. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, if you're interested in film, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. BFI wise. Um, what are we thinking? No, <laughs> I'm going to say no. Well, I don't subscribe to the one film per director uh, idea. Although I think I would heavily limit it past two movies. Yeah. Uh, like it, it is exponentially more difficult each movie past two for me. And the fact is, is I know of two movies from Godard on this list ahead of us that I like more. So I'm going to say no, but I really like I, this. I, I do really like this. This is top five Godard making me shift my opinion on Godard. But when three quarters or one quarter of this movie is just insufferable to me, I can't give it the benefit. But I redact my distaste for Godard. And we have come full circle from this year. We have come full circle. It's interesting. What what opinions have we said this episode that next year we're going to be like, yeah, we're wrong. <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. You, I'm going to love greed a year from now. The farther we go on, the more sure we are of our opinions, probably. Yeah. The more um, the more we know our taste. So, yeah, that's that's split take. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do next week. Sometimes we announce it. Sometimes we don't. I don't know. So we'll uh, we'll leave it a cliffhanger. <laughs>